moisture management is either, and, and most obvious, trying to stay dry from the outside in. So I'm trying to block snow, I'm trying to block rain. That's the obvious one. The one that's not so obvious is trying to manage moisture from the inside out. And that's really where these technical clothing systems come in. Hey everybody, welcome to the Hoyt Bowhunting Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Ferris, here with uh, Hoyt. Um, what do you do down there at Hoyt, Evan? <laughs> Currently or next week? That, that is it. So, um, with my actually, old... actually starting starting next week, I do have a new title. So, do you seriously? While, while we're doing this, we're gonna we're gonna introduce the new title. Okay, well, um, go, so... well, go for it because I actually don't know that the new title. He's pro staff manager. Evan has been for for a long time. But what what are you gonna be? Yep. So um, I will still be hunting pro staff manager. Um, all target is going to be absorbed by another individual. Um, but moving forward, it'll be hunting pro staff manager, marketing event coordinator, and technical advisor. Well, that sounds really fun, especially the event coordinator part. You absolutely get, get ready to lose hair, brother. <laughs> I don't got much left to lose. <laughs> <laughs> well, me and Evan's special guest today is John Barklow. Uh, John is the, the you are the big game product manager from Sitka, correct, John? That's correct, Danny. Yep. And, and uh, John, it's funny, I was just talking to you, talking about you with my buddy Aaron Snyder. Um, he's coming out here to do a turkey hunt with me sometime tonight or tomorrow. And he's he, he, there aren't very many people that Aaron's like, Oh yeah, that guy's an awesome guy. You know, he, he's one of the coolest guys I've ever met. And so, uh, that's exactly what he said about you. Uh, he said he just got done guiding you on a ship, uh, sheep hunt or something like that. Yeah. We were down in West Texas for Audad and, uh, yeah. I'd never, I'd never hunted Audad. I tell you that hunt, you know, I, I, I stay prepared year round, but that hunt was, um, it was a little bit more technical. Oh, and yeah. physically challenging than I than I thought. Like it was a legit desert sheep hunt. It was awesome. It was a sure, really good yeah. time. Yeah. Well, awesome. and everyone's all. I I've never hunted Audad. Um, I want to real bad, but I've always heard that those things are like a coos deer on steroids or something. That they are tremendously difficult for you know to get close to, especially for yeah. the range in that rocky terrain that yeah. you're talking about in West Texas down there. A lot of people don't have any idea that anything like what you're hunting those in down in West Texas exists in Texas. Um, yeah, you would have no idea until you go down there and drive into it. I mean, you're driving across flat desert and then all of a sudden, boom, the Davis mountains are right there and yeah. it's an and, incredible place. And they're straight up and down and rocky and everything pokes you. Um, oh yeah. I've been down in that country, just never hunted Audad down in it. But, uh, so do you have a good hunt? I did. Yeah, I did. It was, uh, it was challenging weather-wise, really, really strong winds, which the, the, you know, that, that, that can be challenging obviously when you're, when you're archery hunting, but, um, but just swirling winds. I mean, there was, there was one stock, we were coming in above these sheep on, on a cliff about halfway up the mountain, hundred foot drop right to the band of rams. It was going to be, you know, we were going to be right on top of them right afternoon thermals coming up nice heat in the day like no doubt this is going to happen going to get at least a shot no 
wind <laughs> swirls and i don't know how sheep could smell us a hundred feet down vertical cliffs right. but they did and just boogered out and and that kind of just that was just the week you know yeah. we could find sheep we could get on sheep we were finding some really big rams mm-hmm. we could close the distance to i mean one time Snyder and I got within 60 and didn't know where they were. And we were just trying to, you know, kind of walk in on them, puff a wind and you're gone. And so we just never got the consistent afternoon thermals we needed. Um, you know, got, had some luck on some javelina. And like I said, I mean, we were in sheep all day, every day. It, it was yeah. just an awesome time. So I'm going to try to go back in, uh, in November, maybe early December and uh and try to get back on a big ram yeah well you're describing some of the places that i elk hunt where that wind just never ever i it's never consistent and it's one of the most frustrating things that there is to do yeah about mountain hunting um yeah is when you just can't get away from that stuff and and like you said when they're when you're blowing them out when they're in that country you can see them at least when you're blowing them out right yeah you know oh it's just yeah but that's why they live there you know because they've got that to their advantage and you know i mean obviously you can you got to get a little lucky right i mean all the skill in the world's not you're not going to beat the wind you're just not and uh, that's exactly right i actually i actually ended up missing the first day i missed a, a a pretty nice ram i mean he was at least 30. um again kind of circle around on top it was a it was a bit of a long shot but the angle was a 67 degree down angle and uh i got an incredible photo of of the uh of the shot but it was windy i tried to tuck in on this ledge kind of in the lee you know to get this shot waited for the ram to separate turn the whole thing and uh I broke that shot and I, I know what I saw in my mind, but sometimes the shooter and see something different than the reality. Right. So a lot of times when you're Danny Ferris, almost all the time. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, miss, miss completely, which, you know, nobody ever likes to do, but, and so I'm sitting there, I'm like, did you guys see that arrow? And, uh, and, and, and Snyder said, he goes, all I saw, because I was shooting white white veins that day, and he says, all I saw was your arrow all the way to the left and then all the way to the right. And the photographer behind me said, man, that thing just came out and went completely out of frame. And what I had seen is when I shot, it, you know, because of the distance and then the wind coming across, that arrow came out of my bow like a Sidewinder missile off a jet and yeah. just – these giant corkscrews. And, uh, I was like, man, it's going to be just challenging, challenging this week to, you know, to get a shot. So, uh, anyways, you know, it, it, it happens, but, uh, but it just a super technical, but fun, uh, uh, type of hunting, you know? So yeah, we covered a lot of miles. It was, it was a good time. You, you definitely need to go down there and try that. Yeah. And affordable, uh, as far as very affordable, if if you want an affordable sheep hunt, that is a sheep hunt that that, that's a sheep hunt. It's, you know, rather than going up to BC or something and, and breaking the bank, that one, uh, that one's a poor man's sheep hunt. And it might be just as challenging, if not more challenging than anything else you're going to find. 
Yeah, I agree. And, you know, those rams are impressive. A guy in camp, you know, he ended up shooting a 34-inch ram with a rifle oh, yeah. towards the end of the week. And and we got to look at that thing. And, man, what a specimen. Just awesome yeah. animals. Awesome. They're pretty yeah. cool. If I ever get a chance to chase one, I have it. I, I have like a half mount in mind where they're stepping out of the wall and they got their shafts. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. You got to get the chaps. Yeah. Yeah. The beers. Yeah. yeah. That would be super cool. Well, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I know that um, that you are a wilderness survival expert. Um, I was looking at your Instagram page and, man, I started watching videos and I was I, I watched your one on rain gear um, and, man, I can tell that you have spent a ton of time out there you know, living like a coyote. Um, I understand <laughs> that you have uh, a special forces background. Um, so why don't you kind of tell us a little about where you come from and how you got into this side of the hunting industry and how long you've been with Sitka? Yeah. So uh, I was in the military for 26 years and for 20 of those 26, I was doing various different things uh, uh, for the SEAL teams. And, and where I ended up, was up in Alaska, uh, basically teaching teaching guys how to go into the mountains in the winter specifically, right, to Afghanistan kind of training. And um, just a really fortunate period of my life, we were able to develop the training and the tactics and then all the equipment that went with it. So just this really unique opportunity to do that. And the cool thing was I was able to you know, teach, teach during the week, so to speak, and then apply those lessons in gear running around. We were on Kodiak Island, so I could go run around Kodiak Island and, uh, you know, and just go archery hunt for bear, deer, whatever it was, a lot of mountain goat in the winter. Yeah. Um, so then at a certain point, you know, I decided I needed to retire and couldn't keep up with the young guys anymore. And I really wanted to work in the hunting industry because it was a passion and, you know, the military was a passion of mine. I, I wanted to keep doing that. I wanted to have fun with what I was doing. And I was just super fortunate uh, to get a job with Sitka Gear. And they were restructuring at the time. And so I was, I am the first big game product manager that, that they've ever had. And what that means is all I do is focus on that part of the business. So, you know, to paint with a kind of broad brush, you know, the big game hunting is basically, you know, elk, mule deer, uh, sheep, goat, antelope, that kind of North American Western big game that we all think about. Sure. Um, and so what I was able to do is just take some of those lessons in gear development and some of the training aspects and just had a great opportunity to leverage them into Sitka, you know, and Sitka was, I think, arguably you know, Jason and Jonathan were the two guys that had kind of brought the idea of, you know, technical apparel into hunting. Um, and that just, that fit my strong suit to be able to just go and focus on those things. Um, and, you know, Sitka's given me some great opportunities to, you know, go hunt kind of around the world and, and just leverage some of my talents in that, that wilderness survival aspect and, and really be able to build some cool stuff. Um, and then, just to jump ahead a little bit, we had this whole COVID thing, and I got to work from home for the last year and had a little extra time on my hands. And I said, uh, I'd been putting it off for a long time because although I, I am in the media, uh, it's not something I 
feel I need to do. But long story short, I started doing these videos on Instagram and it's been about a year now. And I really enjoy that. And I realized I miss teaching. I really enjoyed teaching and the, the, the reception from people has been really, been really cool. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just try to give the information. I'm not, I'm not promoting a product or my own brand specifically. It's all about, Hey, if you want to go into, into the mountains, I focus on hunting cause that's what I do a little bit of backcountry skiing, but Hey, if you want to go do this, if you want these skills, like here's where you should start, here's what you think about, you know, here's, here's the gear you should start gathering. And then I'm really big about training with it. So don't take my word for it. Go and use it for yourself, kind of gain that experience and uh you know and start building that resume so to speak well those those videos that you're talking about that your your instagram site's called knowledge of storms or knowledge from storms and man there you go into some pretty deep dives in those videos <laughs> and i don't know if you're aware of this or not but you turn into a different te- person when you're teaching <laughs> When you watch John's videos, he is a dead serious son of a gun. Like he is intense. Like, straight face. There's this no is the way freaking is. smiling. Yep. There's no, you know, I, I mean, there's no joking around. This is no BS, you know, like he dives into these things and he is intent on delivering this message. And it, it, you just watch a couple of them. And you know that this is a guy who has spent a lot of time out there doing this stuff. And it's, so different than talking to you in person like this because you are you got a smile on your face you're laughing and chuckling i watched a dozen videos with you in the last couple days and there wasn't i've never seen your teeth before now um which is i mean it's it's cool you you you're definitely passionate about it you know what i mean i I am passionate about it yeah and (laughs) i'm working on it though i'm working on it no i think i don't think you need to change a thing don't take that as a as a a criticism no i don't i don't um it's funny because i was talking to a buddy What'd you say? Yeah. I said, I want to see some more of that Grizzly Adams come out. Some of those <laughs> videos where it's, there's just a little scruff. Like, like yeah. John, yeah. give me, give me full September mode here. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and no, then it's hilarious. Some of that. I was just having this conversation yesterday with a friend of mine. Yeah. Uh, and, and I said, listen, I, I said, it's not a conscious thing. I said, but I've been doing this for so many decades that when I start when I go into teaching mode, like I almost yeah. kind of like lose myself like Will Ferrell, right? When he's debating in old school, it's like, <laughs> and I can't even like, I just fall back into it. And you're right. Like I, I you know, I mean, you gotta, you gotta understand. I mean, the information I, I, I used to put out in my former life, like it could literally be life and death. Right. And I had X yeah. number of days with guys to like impart all the wisdom I could. And so it just, it's so easy for me to fall back into that. Yeah. Yeah. People that know me, they're like, Oh yeah, he's a nice guy and fun loving guy. And he likes to joke around (laughs) those videos. It's so funny because as you're talking to me, I am literally scrolling down your Instagram page (laughs) and you look like one mean mother effer, man. I mean, like you do, you've got this part two. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. great. So it's, it's funny. One of the worst, the, one of the things on your Instagram page that got my attention when I was scrolling down through it the first time 
was whoever's feet those are that was frostbit and you, you oh, were yeah. talking about being uh you know uh, being a, an expert in cold weather survival is, yeah. is that your foot no that's no one that's of the not worst my things foot. i've ever seen I, I can't honestly tell you i mean it was one of our students i can't tell you the person's name because i don't know it but uh he he wasn't the only one out of that one particular uh you know, training exercise that we did, but it, it's just a classic example of, you know, what, what happens if you don't pay attention, right? And yeah, listen, if we're, if all of us, I mean, even if you're sitting in a tree stand, but for the most part, if you're going out in the back country, you're going to spend a couple of days there. We're all putting ourselves in a position that that could happen to any of us. Right. And absolutely. And the gear's gotten so much better that it's, uh, it's almost like provided this false sense of security to people. Um, you know, I like to say that people think that, you know, whatever brand of clothing you, you want to, you want to wear that it's like this Superman's cape, right? Like I put it on, I feel invincible, nothing can happen to me. And it's like, no, it's certainly better than maybe the old cotton we used to wear, you know, blue jeans or flannel, but depending on what you're doing. And, you know, I know you guys hunt like me, right in the mountains, doesn't matter if it's snowing or raining. Um, you just need a little bit of information to really help, um, to, to help kind of bring out the, the full potential of, you know, of the, of this clothing, right? I mean, it's become this obviously big business, but, um, people just think that they can buy that, throw it on and go to the middle of, uh, you know, Alaska. And it's not, it's just not quite that easy. Right. Right. It's, no, it's not. Unique. I, I love I love how Sitka has branded themselves in their name as gear because that's what it is. It's, it's technical gear designed for a specific purpose. And that's, you know, you talk about the industry and where clothing has come and it really is now all about effective layering. And yep. that's one thing that you guys do very, very well. Talk a little bit about the, the system that is potentially there we're putting together for something like a like a September elk hunt. Yeah, yeah. So when you boil it down, um, you, you I call it the eight piece system, right? So if you have eight pieces, no matter what brand, uh, you can put a you can put a system together. Now, I'll, I'll get into it just a little bit, but depending on the time of year, so basically temperature, um, you might tweak what one of those layers are, but you only need eight. So you have a base layer top and bottom. And so you have two choices. You can go synthetic or wool. So that's that's just a personal choice. Um, so that's two pieces. Then you have a soft shell pant, right? So the soft shell pant is your hunting pant. It's what most people are gonna have camouflage on. It's gonna have cargo pockets. It's gonna protect you from uh, abrasion from rocks. It's going to you know shed probably some, some light precipitation. And it's going to give you a bunch of storage. So that's that's three. And then uh, you need, uh, I like to wear some type of jacket. So I'm a huge proponent of, you know, any kind of wind stopper or wind blocker technology, right? So I like to wear a wind stopper jacket. And the reason I do that is when you understand how the body loses heat, it loses heat very quickly from wind. And so if you're able to just have a light windbreaker you know, anything like that to block the wind, that's going to be hugely important, right? So, uh, so you have a wind, a windbreaker. So that's four. Um, 
Then you have a, we'll call it uh, like a heavyweight fleece kind of thing, right? So um, there's some different, you know, active insulations that like Sika has. Some other brands have something very similar. I'm not exactly sure of the of their technologies, but Cremeloft and Polar Tech and some of these brands make this super breathable, lightweight kind of heavyweight insulation, or you can just go to use like a, like a heavyweight grid fleece, right? So that's, that's one. And that allows you to add insulation, but still move around and, and, and have breathability. Then you have your puffy jacket. So the puffy jacket is something that you put on everything, keeps you warm, dries you out. You're sitting there glassing, whatever it is, hanging out in camp. So that's six and then rain jacket and pants right? So that's seven and eight. So if you just have those eight pieces in your pack, most of them are going to be on your body. So there's not a lot in your pack. Um, then that's kind of what you need. You know, you throw some, a beanie and some gloves in, you're good. All right. If in the early season, that puffy jacket is going to be a really lightweight puffy jacket. And I may choose depending on the environment, like Evan down where you, you live in Utah, like Maybe you don't bring rain gear in that early season, right? That that's a choice. But then as the seasons progress and I get into elk season, maybe that puffy jacket's more of a, you know, a midweight insulation type jacket. I'm definitely going to carry the uh, the rain gear. And then in the late season, that puffy jacket's going to be much warmer and those soft shell pants may be a thicker material, right? We we make some that have waterproof seat and knees, really nice to sit and uh and kneel in in the snow so you can tweak the gear but you only really need eight pieces to kind of get you through a year um and you know i think all these all the hunting brands we we all make clothes and we all talk about layering i would argue that that none of the brands have done a as good a job as the general outdoor industry has done the last 20 years teaching people how this layering really can, I like to call it a force multiplier, right? I like to say, listen, I don't want to be driven out of the mountains by mother nature. I want to leave on my own terms. And, you know, when you're a military guy, you don't get the chance to leave the mountains because you're cold or wet or hungry. You're going to stay there till the mission's done. Well, if I've spent all this time and all this money uh, you know, trying to draw a tag, driving across the country to go on my elk hunt. Man, I don't want to be driven out of the mountains by some snotty weather, right? I want to be able to stay there and capitalize on the good weather. As soon as that storm breaks, man, I might get the opportunity of a lifetime on a buck or a bull. And so people don't look as, at clothing like that. Um, but if you have those eight pieces in your pack, you can pretty much make it work um, year round. Well, and you were, you were talking about... It whether you're driven out or having a good chance at a buck or a bull right after that storm breaks. But in some of the situations that we put ourselves in, in just backpack hunting or drop camps, especially up north where you are dropped off and, you know, somebody's coming back to get you a week later, you can literally run into life or death situations. And depending upon what kind of weather rolls in on you, um, it, it, you need to know what you're doing. And a lot of what I hear you talking about on, um, on your Instagram page in these videos is a ton of it has to do with moisture management. Um, yeah. 
and it, especially in cold weather. And, you know, what happens when you're, you're wearing certain layers and how to prevent moisture from building up from the inside because your body's a heat source. Why don't yep. you talk a little bit about that um, and just kind of go into, go into some of that. You've, you've got a broad array of things that you can talk about there. Yeah. So it, it, I, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because when you, when you talk about clothing, when you talk about layering, it, it all comes down to, to that moisture management piece that you talked about, right? Yeah. So moisture management is either, and, and most obvious, trying to stay dry from the outside in. So I'm trying to block snow. I'm trying to block rain. That's the obvious one. The one that's not so obvious is trying to manage moisture from the inside out. And that's really where these technical clothing systems come in. So I like to say the hunter has to be an active participant. So what does that mean? It means, hey man, if you're going up the mountain and you're wearing too many clothes and you're going so hard that you're sweating, you're doing a couple things. One, you're dehydrating yourself. And that may be a tough uh, hole to climb out of in the backcountry. The second thing you're doing is you're making yourself unduly wet, right? You're not managing your moisture well. So you're gonna get to the top of the ridge you're going to want to spend time glassing. You're not going to be moving around. Hopefully you put on that puffy jacket, but if you don't have a good system and you've made yourself wet, you're kind of kicking your own butt, right? Oh yeah. It's going to take longer to dry out, or maybe you're not going to dry out at all. Or you're going to, you're going to start to worry about, uh, you know, trying to dry out or you're going to, you're going to start jackhammering and you might miss that animal down in that basin that you spent all that time climbing to the top of the hill on. Right? So to me, it's all about, moisture management and maybe this is just because you know not busting on military guys because i was one for a long time but i'm always trying to boil it down to to the to just a few key points that that people can remember and so if you if you remember that master uh, moisture management that's kind of the biggest key point so another uh thing to consider in moisture management is when you start out hiking for the day so if you start out and you're super warm you're going to be inefficient because you're going to have to stop. You're going to have to take off layers or you're going to be stubborn like me and just, oh, I'm just going to push to the top oh, yeah. of the ridge. And then you're going to be, again, you're going to exhaust yourself, dehydrate yourself, and you're going to be, and you're going to be wet. So people say, okay, well, I get that concept. And I'm like, okay, perfect. Now here's how we apply it. Because to me, don't take my word for it. Don't take any brand's marketing message for what they say, you're the one out there, you're the one trusting your life to the gear. So you should have the confidence to, to know that it's going to work for you. So I'm a big proponent of training. And I like to say, uh, go exercise your system. And what I mean by this is, most of us aren't gonna go out and completely sweat our entire system out to see how long it takes to dry. Yeah. So in the spring, in the summer, you know, kind of, you know, prior to the big show in fall, go and purposely get your base layers wet. Go and purposely get your soft shell pants wet in a bucket of water. Yeah. Wring it out. We're talking worst case scenario. Put it on and start hiking and see how long it takes to dry. See if your clothing actually does dry. Some gear may not dry as well as you want it to. Uh, some puffy jackets may not 
uh, keep you as warm as you want when you're when you're a little damp and you're standing on that ridge top. So it doesn't have to be anything extreme. You know, I've done some of those uh, extreme videos in the past where I jump into a frozen slushy river and then I get out and I just keep my clothes on and, and I go through the whole process of drying out. That's worst case survival type scenario. But people don't have to get to that point, and, and, and I don't suggest they do because it can be kind of dangerous. But just go and see for yourself. And what that does, Danny, is it builds confidence in, in, the, in the equipment and clothing that people have put together. And it builds confidence with the hunter so that if they are trapped out, say, at 12,000 feet on an early season mule deer hunt, and they are away from their tent, and they got soaked, and they weren't able to put their rain gear on in time, they're not going to freak out and think, oh, my God, I'm going to die of hypothermia because now that rain turned to snow and it's going to take me an hour to get back to my tent. It's like, no, you know what? I've been here before. I know how this works. I've got the confidence. It may suck a little bit, right? That type two fun. Yeah. Nobody said it's got to be, you know, the, the, the most comfortable thing, but it's going to save your life. That's why people, I hope are spending the money to buy these technical clothing systems for hunting because that's what they offer. And if you're not taking advantage of that, then you're kind of really not leveraging, right, the full potential of the gear. Right. Well, and and you really, with a lot of this stuff, you get what you pay for. Um, you do. And there, there are some shortcuts that you can take here and there, uh, materials that are, that are going to work, but like rain gear, for instance. Holy smokes, is, are there huge differences in rain gear from one set to the next across, you know, everything that you can find? And, you know, I used to be a firm believer that you, you chose one of two things. You either chose rain gear that actually kept the water out or, or you chose breathable. That if, if it was truly breathable, it didn't keep the water out. You know what yeah. I mean? And yeah. it. The, the better it was at keeping the water out, the less breathable it was going to be. That's changed over time, especially after Sitka got together with Gore uh, years ago. Um, yep. Some of the rain gear available to us is much better than it used to be. But it's still some of those times where I have gotten into the worst trouble while I've been on a backcountry hunt are on those days where it's not a thunderstorm that came through. It's a cloudy wet drizzly day all day long the vegetation yep. that i'm traveling through might be wet it's drizzling on me all day long i've got a pack on probably over top of my of my rain gear and you don't think that you're getting wet on the inside but you are you are yeah. all day long and then all of a sudden the temperature drops and there, there is no place dry. And, you know, talk about managing that and talk about some of the rain gear that's available. You know, I'm sure that you're familiar with the the situation that I'm talking about. Oh, well, a hundred percent, you know, coastal Alaska is a great example of that. Yeah. Pacific Northwest is another great example or anywhere in Canada, really. Um, you know, so that's where that kind of active participant comes back into play. It's like, if I, if I know the conditions are like that, um, then I know I'm going to have to probably slow down my pace. I'm not going to be able to get to where I want to go as quick. And you got um, you got to slow it down a lot. You got to slow it down, you know. And, and and technology has done an amazing job with rain gear. Um, 
And I like to say, and I said in that one video, I said, you know, rain gear is like car insurance. We all have, we all know we have to have it. Um, but some of us want to spend a little bit more on that car insurance than others. But every one of us wants the car insurance if we get into a wreck. My point is every one of us wants and needs quality rain gear when you actually need it. When you need rain gear, nothing else is going to work, right? Your puffy jacket's not going to work. Your base layer is not going to work. You need rain gear. And so, um, you know, you, you have to try to, uh, so everybody's tolerance for risk can be different there. The dirty little secret with, with any rain gear, um, when you really start to look at the physics and how it works, is that when it's very arid, when it's warm, when there's not a lot of moisture in the air, rain gear breathes really well. But in those coastal areas where there's a heavy dew point and the temperature starts to get closer to freezing, uh, there's mist in the air or fog or some light precipitation falling, um, it's actually really, it becomes more difficult for the garment to actually move moisture because of the this physics involved, right? Mm -hmm. And so people, would go out, say, in the summertime, they'll hike up to a lake, they'll go fishing, it'll start to rain, they'll put the ring around, they'll be like, oh, great, it works. Yeah. Then they don't understand in these more difficult situations with weather um, that it's not going to breathe as well, right? And so the higher quality rain gear, and then, you know, there's some there's some good brands out there um, that that's, that's when you really need it to perform, and that's when that's going to separate the the men from the boys, right? Or the wheat from the chaff is the quality rain gear is going to perform in those worst case weather scenarios and the good stuff isn't. The other thing you get when you start purchasing more expensive rain gear is you get durability. Yeah. So, you know, and I, I would be lying if I told you I haven't bought, you know, inexpensive rain gear over the years and it's worked for six months, but at the, at the end of two years, I bought, three or four or five sets of it. Whereas if you do buy a quality set of rain gear, you know, it should last you for quite a long time. It's, you know, unless you're the guide up in Alaska or Canada, or you live in those areas like Pacific Northwest, where, you know, even if it's not raining, you have to wear rain pants because all the ferns have water on them and you're just like walking through a, a shower. Yeah. Um, most people are going to get years out of their rain gear, right? So, yeah, it, it's come along. You know, we just launched something called the Dew Point rain gear. It took me three years to develop that. Uh, the jacket and the pant and the size large are just shy of a pound and a half. So 23 and a half ounces, I think that is. Um, you know, but it, it took a long time to get there. And, and so it's it. there's a lot of technology in, in, in some of the higher end rain gear that people just don't understand, but they want to put it on and they want it to work. That's that's the job of these companies is that's what we need to provide a product that man in the worst case scenario to save your life that's it like that is your first line of defense um you know you may not be able to seek a shelter under a tree in a cave uh under a tarp when you're on one of these tent uh one of these hunts you know it may be the rain gear that is your shelter and is going to protect you keep you dry keep the wind off you know it's that important um, and I think people just kind of dismiss it sometimes and go, yeah, well, I'll just buy whatever and, and it'll work just fine. And it might not, depending on where you're going.
Oh man, I just the uh, some of the worst stuff that I've ever dealt with went in rain gear is scrub oak, and in a lot of our western hunting, yeah, scrub oak is all over the place. And trying to get through scrub oak, you you'll find out how good your rain gear is real quick. And yeah. you talk about the durability, and you might not think, oh, it's not that big a deal. You know, I'm I'm not going to be walking through anything that's going to rip this stuff off of me. Holy smokes, man! Uh, it, there's there's a lot of things in our western mountains that uh, that will surprise you. Um, yeah, yeah. create those situations where you know, like you said, separates the wheat from the chaff. And I've I've used man, I've still got a set of sicker rain gear that Jonathan gave me. I don't know. <laughs> shoot, this is this is prior to Jason uh, leaving the oh, wow. a long time ago. Um, that I that still works great to this day, and yeah. I know that your stuff that you've got these days are uh, it surpasses that by far. So, what are the other some of the other things in your Sitka line right now? Oh, you know, I wanted to ask you about Optifade and kind of the science behind Optifade. Um, tell us a little bit about the camouflage patterns that you guys have available. Um, and and break it down just a little bit for the guy that might not understand exactly what goes into the the theories behind Optifade. Yeah, the, the so Optifade is a technology that Gore um, kind of created years ago. Um, they they leveraged they leveraged some um, uh, scientists. I'm trying to think of the word right now. Um, it was. Uh, all about uh, personal signature management is what they call it in the military, right? Because you got to put a long, cool title to it. Right. Um, but it's basically about how you hide humans from humans. They brought those people in, and then they brought some deer scientists that uh, that study white-tailed deer, which is very similar when you look at the eyes, apparently, same as like a mule deer, an elk, so any of these ungulates that live in North yeah. America. Yeah. Um, and they looked at the rods and the cones, and and so they said, how do deer perceive the world? How do these ungulates perceive the world, and how is that different than how a human perceives the world? And so they, they kind of mashed this together, and what Optifade is, is the science of concealment technology from the eyes of the animal you're hunting. So, uh, you know, I, I know what I know what I see and how I see the world. And I know how I could hide from somebody because of that. Um, taking some of the technology of the military side out, they wanted to see, okay, what is, you know, what does that deer see? Well, the deer sees in shades of gray, uh, blues as an example, stand out very, very vibrantly to the deer, almost glow in the dark if they're in a certain spectrum. So we want to stay away from that. But anyways, once you get this all built out and say, okay, here's how, uh, you know, here's a pattern optimized for, say, you know, open country, long rocks, kind of sneaking in on a doll sheep as an example. Sure. And how does that differ from a pattern that has different tones in it that maybe protects you in more timbered terrain? And really what it comes down to is the color that, that we see makes it commercially viable. We, the human, want to blend into our surroundings. We, we want to feel that confidence. Right. Um, and 
and that's important but what's also important is how the animal sees it so then what you do is you you take these colors you break them up macro micro how much of this how much of that and the different shades of color between the two and the amounts that are there are what begin to break up our silhouette to these ungulates um so that's where it started and it's very unique in the hunting space for sure um but then we got into whitetail deer hunting. We we're like, okay, well, I'm not moving on the animal, but the animal's coming to me. I'm almost exclusively going to be in a tree stand. The deer's going to be looking up. What does that skyline look like? What does that foliage look like? So that's how we came up with a whitetail pattern. But then conversely, with the waterfowl patterns, they actually flew drones in at the same uh, approach angle of ducks yeah. coming down into a spread or geese and film that and said, okay, how, how does the duck or the goose, how do these birds see the world and how can we conceal ourselves from that? So that's why you see these different patterns um, specifically for different things. Turkey's an interesting one because turkeys generally see the world in color, right? Yeah. They see yeah. it very, very well, better than a human. Um, you can't get away with a lot of, of movement. Um, so that's kind of more in line with, you know, more the way a human sees, but it may be even accentuated actually. So anyways, that's, that's how we approach camouflage. Um, yeah, it has to be commercially viable to the hunter because we want them to be attracted to it and feel good about wearing it. But the most important thing is, listen, I don't care if you, Danny, think, uh, you can see me, but if I can slip in to 20 yards on that bull and get an arrow in his ribs, like that's what I care about. That's why I'm wearing it. And so that's kind of the approach we take with this optophage science. Yeah, and, and, when, and when it was – go ahead, Evan. I was just say for, for anyone who finds that technology and, and wants to know more about that, go onto YouTube or just search the science of nothing, and there's, there's that whole series. And that, that will truly, really sell you on that digital macro-micro push that is – that is on all of the, the Sitka gear because it it is amazing technology and all the science and the studying and the background that went into that. Yeah, the, the last thing I was going to say about that is if, if I remember correctly, at least in the hunting space, not not the military, but, you know, we were all, um, you know, we were all wearing mimicry. We were all wearing camouflage that literally looked like our surroundings. You know, people call it leaf and stick and, and things like this. So it was really a big swing to do this digital type pattern um, and, and kind of walk away from mimicry. I, I wasn't with the company then, you know, I'm sure it wasn't the easiest sell. But, you know, now when you look at the market, the vast majority of patterns are, are digital or, or something. And, and then, we, you know, the whole industry's kind of not exclusively, but begun to move away from mimicry. I was mm -hmm. at the press release when. Oh, were you really? When those guys announced uh optifade the first time and i don't know i don't remember what year it was but it was a and and they had a couple of scientists there that were talking and you know for a bunch of dumb rednecks that were standing in the crowd this stuff was going straight over our head at the time you know what i mean yeah. and like you said we were using stick and limb um everything back then and I, you know, some of the stick and limb patterns have come along since then as well. They have. I think yep. in the beginning, you know, it was all about what looked good to somebody at three feet 
right there on 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 the shelves in a retailer. You know what I mean? And you your your goal was to sell the consumer to pull it off the shelf. Um, Optipade was the first big advancement into something. It was the departure from that from that way of thinking. Um, yeah, and I, and I there think it was two thousand eight or nine. By the way, Danny. Was it 2008 or nine? I think 2008 was the actual launch of it. That sounds about right. That sounds about right. I can tell you from talking to those guys now, right, with many, you know, a decade plus behind them, that they had their kind of their heart in their throat. Like they didn't, they weren't, I mean, they believed in it, but they weren't so sure it was going to be adopted, you know, and to your point now, Danny, like even the, 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 the leaf and limb type patterns, like it's just, it was such a big shift that got everybody thinking differently yeah. to try to yeah. do something more and just, you know, push, you know, push technology as far as, you know, people thought they could, they could push it. So I think everybody kind of benefited from it. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it pushed everyone to a different point. All of the patterns have gotten a whole lot better. You guys' yeah. selection of patterns has broadened quite a bit. Um, yeah. And, and you like, like Evan was saying, you need to go read about it a little bit to understand it a little bit better. Um, so in your, in your line, you were talking about the, uh, the new, um, rain gear that you've brought out. Is there anything else that you guys are really excited about right now from, from Sitka? <laughs> uh, there, there's a couple things that I am, I am, uh, bursting at the seams to tell the world about that's yeah. uh, probably gonna probably gonna come out in june is what i've told uh i've been uh we filmed some stuff when we were down in 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 uh texas on that audad hunt we've been filming things on and off and uh let, let you know i think you said something earlier evan about you know we were the you know in our in our tagline of sitka it's turning clothing into gear and uh you know, I don't like doing boring things because they're boring, right? I like I like to push the envelope and feel a little uncomfortable and and uh, you know maybe quote take a few chances. But I was able to take uh, I can't tell you exactly what it is, but I'll just I'll tease you a little bit. But I've been able to take definitely some of the learnings that I that I that I had in the um, in the military world, which to me when I look at a special operations soldier um, in the mountains we'll call it special reconnaissance, right? So just observing things. To me, there there are so many parallels between the soft soldier and the backcountry big game hunter that the only difference is the weapon they have in their hand and what they're trying to shoot, right? I mean, that aside, everything else is the same. 98% is the same. You can only carry so much. You've got to stay out there as long as you can. You want to stay concealed. You want to be efficient. All these things, right? And so, um, I'll, I'll I'll tease you and say it, it's a new insulation package, but it's in some product forms uh, that I was able to bring from my old life, and and truly, I think these products um, turn clothing into gear. I think it's the it's almost the living embodiment or the epitome of doing that. And, um, you know, I, I hope it starts a conversation. I hope it gets people just looking at how they're doing things. Um, you know, I'm not one, and I hope that comes across on my IG page, but, you know, I'm not one to, and maybe at my own detriment, say, you must use this and you must use that. Yeah. 
because we all do things a little different. You know, you're living in Colorado, you're living in Utah, I'm in Montana. We may hunt different species, different times of year in different ways. I may spot and stalk, you may ambush, whatever it is. Um, I think what's important though, is that people, one, get some information, but more importantly, I'm a huge proponent of training. You know, obviously Evan, you train, right? A lot of physical mm -hmm. training. I know we all shoot, but unless you have the decades of experience that we all have, right? Where we've made every, every mistake and we've learned along the way. And, and quite frankly, we've probably wasted some vacation days and unfortunately probably wasted some great opportunities on some animals. Um, to, to, to get that kind of catch up on some of that experience, people have to go train. So, you know, exercise your system, uh, you know, go spend some nights out in your tent using your camp and stove, eating your dehydrated meals on a fishing trip or, you know, a shed honey trip with your buddy. I I've known guys that have gone on a 10 day elk hunt and they got there and they opened up their dehydrated food and they hated all of it. And I'm like, man, <laughs> you should have cooked you and your wife a gourmet dehydrated meal one night and just tried this stuff. So I'm just a proponent of saying, listen, I can. I can get you in the right direction. I can definitely lessen the steepness of the learning curve, but then eventually it's all up to us to, to go and do it right. And to go and try and fail and have a couple miserable nights out, but hopefully you don't get any tragedies. You just have some cool stories to tell in the process. Right. Right. And that's, and that's the uniqueness of building that system. Like you said, tailoring it to you. Cause John, I know you're a big fan of the synthetic next to skin for your yeah. base layers. Yeah. Great example. And, I sweat very, very heavily. I'm a huge fan of the Merino. Um, I always take two tops with me. I can wear one one day and the next day it is in camp inside out on a tree yep. hanging. And I've got a fresh one I can, I can go with. Yep. Um, and that's one thing I've done for again, drying and moisture management. Um, but also because of the bacterial growth that the Merino allows me to do because of how much I sweat. Yep. So I think it would be a huge mistake, right? If somebody made the statement, well, you're wrong, Evan, because you don't do it my way. It's like, no, that's, that's, that's not the case. The case is that we have the information and experience and now we're trying to, you know, leverage it to suit our, our own, uh, you know, our own applications. And, and that's what, quite frankly, that's one part to me. Listen, hunting season is only so long, man, what am I do the rest of the year. I'm going to shoot my bow. I'm going to train, but yeah, I'm going to buy all this gear and I'm going to train with it. And I'm going to try it. Me and my buddies are going to go out and, you know, even, even hunting partners, like very rarely are you going to be wearing the exact same thing the exact same day. The, the only, I have one rule, you know, I'll call it the universal rule of a clothing system. Uh, no one should break. And, and that's what I say. Don't wear any cotton. That, you can wear anything you want in any combination, but cotton is something that, you know, absorbs a lot of its weight in moisture. It doesn't readily give it up. It's the stage for hypothermia. I'm going to give you an example here. So I'm in Adams County, Ohio, several years ago, hunting big bucks. Um, and there's a guy and a couple guys in camp and they, they see that I'm wearing, you know, the sick of whitetail stuff and my buddy, and they happen to sell some of it at this camp. And so I'm talking to the guy and he decides to buy some and use it the next day. So we get back from the morning hunt and I see this guy's already back. 
and I'm thinking, well, hell, maybe he tagged out. I said, hey, how was it? How'd it go? Like, what, what was your hunt, you know? And he said, it was horrible. He said, I've never been so cold. He said, I had to climb down out of the tree stand. I was back by, by eight o'clock. He said, your gear sucks. And I was like, whoa, like, all right, like walk me through this. And so I start asking a series of questions. And, and what happened was this guy was not used to technical clothing. He was used to hunting in, in cottons. And so what he did was he wore uh, cotton pants and a cotton t-shirt. And then he put this technical windstopper fleece over top of that. He walked to his tree stand, not understanding how warm he would get. When he stopped in the in the stand, uh, the cotton didn't dry. And so uh, standing on that uh, metal tree stand grate, he literally just shivered trying, you know, his body was trying to generate heat to dry the cotton. He couldn't deal with it. He climbed down. He said, your gear's bad. And I said, okay, I'm sorry. I took some assumptions here that, that you kind of knew at a general high level what you were doing. I said, let's go back and walk you through this. It wasn't the, our gear, right? It was what you were wearing underneath. It's so critical. And so that's an example of how cotton can be a detriment. Now, if somebody says, I only hunt early season, Arizona, and I'm going to run in cotton and, you know, I'm not normally spending the night out in a small tent. I'm either back in camp or in the, or in the camper. A, a person like that can get away with cotton because cotton is a great way of regulating heat and cooling you off. But if you're going to go into the back country uh, or you're not going to be able to manage your moisture like this gentleman did in Ohio, um, anything cotton is going to be a detriment to any technical system and all that money you spend on that technical system can be wasted just because you wear a cotton t-shirt or, you know, cotton briefs, something like that. So, you know, sometimes it's the little things um, that can really have an effect. Well, to your point um, about cotton in warmer climates where it is hot, like if your cotton gets wet and then stays damp for the day and you're in 98 degrees, Perfect. That can feel pretty good. That you know, Perfect. then it's a, a pretty good choice. However, that moisture management we were talking about when the temperatures cool down, whether and you know, it's it's funny because for a very long time there was a lot of people who did not think that whitetail hunters that it was very necessary for them to get into technical clothing, um, because. The theory is that you're only walking a couple hundred yards to a tree stand. You're getting up in it and you're there. Well, in my situation and a lot of the whitetail hunting that I've done, I'm kind of working my butt off for a short period of time. Getting to the tree stand, a lot of times I'm carrying, I'm a decoy junkie. And I've always got, uh, you know, uh, a 3D decoy with me and, and something else. And I've got, I look like a Japanese tourist headed out there to the stand i got crap hanging all over me and a, a pack that's as big as the one that i'm taking on a five-day elk hunt that's full of crap most of the time by the time i get to the base of that tree stand and then up into it and get everything all set there's a lot of times where i am i'm sweating like crazy Trenched. yes yeah. absolutely yeah. and yeah. You've got to be cognizant about that moisture management on that just as much as you would have to be, have to be on a sheep hunt or something like that. Uh, you know what, Danny? I would argue with 
you that it's, I wouldn't argue with you, but I tell you that I think it's more important and here's why. Because you're because getting on the chill in that tree stand. That's exactly why. On the sheep hunt or the elk hunt, I can do jumping jacks. That's I can right. walk in circles. I can get up and stand while I'm glassing. You have to stay so still in that tree stand. I'll give you one more story, whitetail story. We used to have a lease in northern Missouri. Me and two friends from the Navy used to go and hunt that. And I was, this is before I worked for Sika, but I was wearing Sika gear. And for three years in a row, I was the only guy that shot a buck in camp. And it definitely was not because I was the best whitetail hunter. I was logging time on stand and I shot three bucks between 1145 and 1230 all three years in a row. And the reason was I was there. I could yeah. stay there. And so the first year, these guys are putting more layers of clothes on. Well, then they can't shoot or climb a tree and they're sweating. Then the second year, I gave them a few pieces and, and they started getting better. The third year, everybody was wearing a technical clothing system for whitetail hunting. And everybody was able to spend, if they wanted to, everybody was able to spend uh, you know, all day in a tree. And actually that third year, another guy did shoot a, a buck. And he said, I knew it. He goes, I knew you weren't tougher than me. I said, no, but I am smarter. But my point is, it's not about how many layers. It's about the right layers and managing that moisture because, it, you know, if you're going to be effective, you can't move. But then if you're there for six hours and that buck comes by, man, you got to be ready and, and able to draw your bow and make an accurate shot. And so I would argue that it's even more important for for a tree stand I, hunter. I completely agree. And it, the it's funny that you were talking about Missouri because the coldest that I have I shouldn't say it, the coldest that I can ever remember being on any hunt was in northern Missouri on a whitetail hunt where <laughs> we had a it, it, we we only had a day or two left to hunt. And so I was sticking it out there through whatever came and we had a, a downpour. It with the temperature was just barely above freezing and we had a downpour in that you know low mid 30s temperature range oh and the yeah jacket the that i had on was i'm not going to say what brand it was from but it was supposed to be a a water a waterproof jacket it was not the seams on that jacket were absolutely not and i had this big pocket on the front of the jacket kind of like a the pocket on a hoodie um and that pocket that top seam on that pocket gathered that water and just dumped it so that I had this, a gallon of water sitting in that pocket on the front of me right there. And it was seeping through the jacket everywhere. Well, as soon as the rain stopped, like typically happens, the deer hit their feet. Okay. And there were, uh, shoot, I can't remember how many bucks we saw in the next hour, but it was a bunch and it was enough to where you needed to be very still. Well, the wind started blowing oh, right man. After, the wind stopped, or after the rain stopped. The the biggest issue is that you can't move. You you are sitting there completely still. You can't let your body generate any heat. And if you right. are wet inside of all of that stuff, whether you did it because you were sweating, heading into the stand or, or, or whatever else, if you don't have the right gear on, you're going to, you're going to have to crawl down out of that stand in the middle of all those bucks moving like that, which is basically what we ended up having to do. Um, yeah. So you had that great opportunity and you couldn't take advantage of it. Blew the opportunity. Because yep. it was, we, we were going, I was getting hypothermic. Yep. I mean, I, I was 100%. shaking so hard that I was going to come out of that stand, you know? 
one way or the other, climb down or fall down, you know? (laughs) Uh, But um, it's, it's fascinating to me because you've seen the growth. I'm sure that Sitka has seen a lot of the guys that I'm seeing in hunting camps out there in the Midwest that are whitetail hunting. They are in top notch gear now and they're they're The consumer base is recognizing the value. People spend all year, especially whitetail hunting, you know, scouting, trail cameras, cutting lanes, hanging stands, all that stuff. It's like that that last step is you got to do everything you can that once you get in that stand, you can log those hours. Like that's yeah. the only way I'm successful on whitetails. I just have to spend time on stand. If I can't because I'm driven out by, you know, poor clothing and, and the weather, which, you know, hunting the rut, it's going to be mostly poor weather. Um, Hopefully, I, I want to do everything I can. Poor weather, you know. Well, yeah. Now, I heard you talking to Winky on one of the earlier podcasts. I was like, yep, yep, had that experience. Yep, warm and windy every time I go whitetail hunting. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but the point is, you can't you can't move around to generate heat. Your clothing is everything you've got to, to stay there. Yep. Absolutely. Well, man, we are getting to just about an hour in. We'll, uh, pro- we'd love to have you on again, man. This super interesting com- conversation. I don't even think that we scratched the surface of the information that you're capable of conveying to everybody. Um, you know, I, I wanted to, when you two were talking about synthetic layers versus merino wool layers, there's some pretty big differences between the two that we're kind of assuming that all of our listeners understand the difference between, but yeah. a lot of them don't. And, no, you know, no. subjects like that, we can take deep dives into into anything because it's super, it's super important understanding those differences and understanding how to use this gear. Like I I love your saying about being an active participant because the way that you, the gear is one thing and if used properly, it is fantastic, but if used incorrectly, it it can be a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. Off the mountain or out of a tree. Yeah. That's exactly right. Well, John, we appreciate you coming on, buddy. Um, We will be talking to you again one of these days. Um, Evan, you got anything before we close up? Definitely. For some information, we talked a lot about your Instagram. Where can we send people so they can see your videos and get more knowledge on everything that you have to offer? Yeah, so my Instagram's jbarklow. So it's J and then my last name, B-A-R-K-L-O-W. Um, I call it knowledge from storms. That's kind of frame it because I feel that all these bad, you know, uh, uh, challenging, you know, times we've had in the mountains. Those are the times that you, are the greatest learning opportunities, and um, and people should take advantage of that and embrace it. And that's how we. That's just how we all get better, right? And and continue to do this thing we love so much. Well, and when you go over there. Everyone, he doesn't really want to kick your ass. He just looks like. <laughs> I promise I don't. I really just want to help. <laughs> just make sure you have a good experience on the mountain. Yeah, I'm from the government. I'm here to help. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thanks a lot. It's been great uh, having you on. Oh, thanks, John. Appreciate guys. everything. All right, we'll see you guys on another podcast. 